Good morning. I think we're going to go ahead and try and get started. I know we've got several other people who are going to uh, trail in here, but the, uh, we do have uh, the minister's got to catch a flight shortly after this, so I want to make sure we've got plenty of time for presentations and, and uh, discussion. Uh, my name is Sarah Ladislaw. I'm a senior fellow here at the Energy and National Security Program. I just wanted to welcome all of you to this morning's event on Arctic gas. Uh, there's lots of familiar faces around the room, and I think that's probably because uh, we've had a lot of events recently on uh, two issues that sort of uh, this uh, topic today sits at the nexus of. Um, as many of you know, the last several years, CSIS Energy Program has spent a great deal of time talking about how natural gas markets are changing. Um, and a lot of this has to do with people's overwhelming interest in unconventional gas resources here in the United States, but also how uh, that's changing the North American market for natural gas, but also global markets. And so we spent a lot of time looking at some of those dynamics. Um, and then on the other side, uh, we spent a great deal of time uh, with our Europe program and some of our other colleagues here at CSIS focusing on Arctic issues and how the changing uh, sort of geophysical dynamics in the Arctic uh, are changing the profile for energy exploration and how that sort of ties in with some of the discussions we've been having in this country about uh, offshore drilling uh, opportunities as well. And so today's discussion actually deals with uh, a little bit of an extension of this discussion about the North American market for natural gas um, and what are the prospects of, uh, of bringing some of those gas resources um, from some of our northern neighbors, uh, both in the Northwest Territories in Canada, but then also uh, from Alaska to uh, uh, places in Canada and then also to the lower 48. And so we're really pleased today uh, to have the opportunity uh, to have two uh, really excellent and distinguished speakers on the topic. Um, we've got uh, Minister McLeod from uh, the Northwest Territories, who's the Minister of Industry, Tourism, and Investment, uh, and uh, who's going to give a presentation on some of their uh, natural resource development issues. And then we also have uh, Larry Persley, who is the U.S. Federal Coordinator for Alaska and the North uh, and, excuse me, and natural gas transport uh, issues. Um, so we're going to get right into the issue. I just wanted to, before we do that, make a cheap plug uh, for our next <laughs> event, which is going to actually also deal with this issue, which will be uh, on, uh, it's June 23rd, right? No, no, it's July 12th, right? July 12th, excuse me, July 12th. Uh, today is June 23rd, excuse me. Uh, it's on July 12th, which will deal um, uh, with uh, Arctic development uh, issues. Uh, as well, uh, both you know, sort of more on the, the energy side. So please stay tuned for that uh, really exciting event that's going to come up too. But without further ado, we've got two presentations. Minister McLeod's going to make one and then uh, and Larry's going to make one as well. So we're going to do both of those presentations uh, and then we'll open up for question and discussion. So thank you very much and thank you both for being here. Uh, thank you, Sarah. And uh Good morning, everybody. I'm very pleased to be here at the Center for Strategic International Studies. When I first heard I was speaking at CSIS, I thought that I was going to be talking to our security and intelligence service in, from Canada. But, <laughs> but uh, before I get into my presentation, uh, I'm also the minister responsible for tourism, so I thought I'd do an advertisement for, for the Northwest Territories. Uh, we're, we're a very small territory of... Uh, 43,000 people, and we have 50% uh, of our population is Aboriginal, and we have uh, 11 official languages. And uh, uh, the North has significant abundance of natural resources. Uh, we also have uh, diamonds. We're, we're third in the world in production of diamonds behind uh, 
Russia and Botswana and ahead of South Africa. So if anybody wants to place any orders, uh, you can you can get a hold of us. <laughs> also, uh, uh, we have uh, this time of the year we have 24-hour uh, sunlight, and so it's great to be to be able to golf at midnight or go fishing at midnight. But on the converse side, in the wintertime, we have 24 hours of darkness. And, and if quite a few of our communities, the sun disappears for two or three months of the year. And uh, we have uh, great fishing, great wildlife, and uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, what I'm doing here in Washington is um, meeting with a, a whole bunch of people to promote the the Mackenzie Gas Pipeline Project. And uh, what I want to do today is uh, give you an, an update on uh, on the pipeline project and uh, uh, what we see as the uh, the benefits of Arctic natural gas, and uh, I'll finish off by by talking a bit about what uh, some of my conclusions are after meeting with uh, quite a few people here, and uh, and uh, I'm glad that uh, I get to talk before Larry this time because uh, he's a tough act to follow. But. <laughs> Uh, some of you may be aware that uh, we've been trying to get the Mackenzie Valley Pipeline built for over 40 years. Uh, in the 60s and 70s, there was significant exploration, and there was uh, the first attempt at uh, having a Mackenzie Valley Pipeline built, and uh, there was uh, significant hearings, and uh, there actually was uh, a pipeline approved, but uh, it it didn't get built, and uh, I think the, the approvals are still in effect. And uh, in about uh, the early 80s, all the oil and gas uh, industry pulled out of the Northwest Territories, and uh, they were gone for probably uh, over 10 years. Uh, about 19, in the mid-90s, uh, oil and gas came back uh, with a renewed interest uh, and renewed uh, interest in a pipeline and uh, it was quite an exciting time for us because uh, the north uh, was in a very severe downturn for quite a few years until oil and gas came back and uh, so the Mackenzie gas pipeline project uh, was uh, proposed we just concluded six years of regulatory review the Mackenzie gas pipeline is a 1,200 kilometer pipeline that goes all the way from uh, the Beaufort down the Mackenzie Valley and uh, about 15 kilometers into Alberta to connect with the, the uh, existing transmission system that connects into the United States and Canada. Now the uh, project, uh, the business case for the project is, is based on uh, three fields, the Lintac, Parsons Lake and Taglu fields, and they have uh, six trillion cubic feet of uh, uh, natural gas to draw from. Uh, the Mackenzie pipeline is is going to be a very significant project. We see it as a as a national national uh, project, and it will benefit not only Northwest Territories but Canada and and the United States. When, once construction begins, it will generate 208,000 person years of employment. And uh, we presently in the Northwest Territories, we have the potential uh, 
uh, of 81 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and 7 billion barrels of oil. Now, uh, when, the, when the pipeline is built, it will increase the gross domestic product of the Northwest Territories by approximately $68 billion, and for Canada, about $89 billion. Now, uh, as I said, uh, we've just completed uh, the regulatory phase of the project. In December 2009, the Joint Review Panel uh, submitted its uh, recommendations to the governments, responsible governments. Uh, the governments prepared a coordinated response to the Joint Review Panel report. In December of 2010, our National Energy Board issued their reasons for decision for, for the pipeline and they determined that uh, it was in the public interest for the pipeline to go ahead. In uh, March of this year, the Government of Canada approved the pipeline and, uh, and the National Energy Board issued a certificate of public convenience and necessity. So uh, that doesn't mean there's clear sailing. Uh, there's still uh, uh, the issue of the fiscal framework. The pro pipeline proponents have indicated that unless they have a fiscal framework negotiated, that uh, it's very unlikely there'll be further progress. Uh, negotiations had begun some time back on a fiscal framework, and then both parties agreed to to stop while the regulatory phase was uh, in, was underway. So we're we're encouraging both parties to get back to the table, and I know that uh, the pipeline proponents have requested uh, meetings with the uh, the government of Canada. As well, uh, we have. Uh, six access and benefit agreements to be negotiated with the Aboriginal governments along the pipeline right away. And to date, five out of the six have been negotiated and ratified. Uh, this sixth is under active negotiation and we expect that that will be, uh, it will be finalized before the end, the end of this year. The other aspect uh, that is very important to know is uh, the, our National Energy Board also directed the proponents to report back with an update on progress on a decision to construct by December 2013 and that construction is to begin by December 31st, 2015. So that would mean uh, natural gas would flow by late 2018 and early 2019. So that's uh, that's brings us to where we are today with the pipeline. And uh, uh, in Canada and the United States, uh, there's uh, there's a lot of shale gas. And uh, one of the reasons for this trip is to find out this is shale gas the panacea that everybody says it is. We know that both in Canada and the United States. Uh, there are some environmental issues. There are some concerns with uh, shale gas. I know in, in Canada, in Quebec, uh, they have put a moratorium on shale gas. And I understand in the United States, there's a few 
regions or states have, have done the same. And uh, we also uh, we also hear uh, uh, rumors that a lot of people say, "Well, there's too much shale gas, so why do you need Arctic natural gas?" And uh, and that's why we come here. Uh, we our our position and our research uh, show that the demand for energy will continue to increase on an annual basis and that all forms of energy will be required including natural gas from from the Mackenzie pipeline and the uh, Alaska pipeline and we also we also see arctic natural gas as an important transitional fuel to move us to a lower carbon economy so that brings us into uh, the issue of climate change in the northwest territories we live in a we have an arctic environment and uh, we see every day the impacts of uh, climate change and the ice is melting and the, you've probably heard of uh, the northwest passage well in our communities that are along the coast uh, the the uh, water is open for much longer periods so that uh, we are as a government we are resupplying our communities by buying fuel offshore and bring it around so that's reduce as reduce our costs of, of fuel in the communities but it's having very significant impacts on our environment and our wildlife and uh, I guess uh, uh, maybe not all, all of it is not 100% attributed to climate change but for example uh, our caribou we used to have a million plus caribou in the last population survey that we did showed uh, the population at 28,000 uh, we're starting to see uh, hybrid cross between polar bears and grizzly bears we're seeing the tree line moving further north our, our water levels are are being affected and we depend on ice roads in the winter time for uh, for moving goods and supplies and, and those ice roads are are because the ice doesn't get as thick and uh, they're not open as long and uh, you know our government of Canada has said uh, whatever whatever legislation or whatever policies that we're going to have on climate change uh, they're going to wait to see what the United States what the United States does uh, before uh, we commit to to any any process so <clears throat> that's basically uh, uh, the message that I've been giving to everybody that I've been meeting here in in Washington so I'll, I'll get to the part uh, which uh, I'll call uh, bad shale or and good shale and I and I guess uh, it came to me when the some of my first meetings, uh, and I, uh, I won't name the department that I was meeting with, and uh, you know, the first we said, as soon as I got into my presentation, I said, well, we've got, we've got Arctic, national, Arctic natural gas that we want to bring to the United States, and I was told, well, the United States has a lot of shale gas. We got so much shale gas that we're already exporting natural gas, and uh, so that was a big surprise for me. And uh, so we talked about, uh, about uh, the benefits of, 
Arctic natural gas and that uh, we, it's a transitional fuel to bring us to a low carbon economy. And we think it's important, uh, especially if we can get the transportation sector to change so that uh, we can use uh, uh, natural gas. And uh, I was told, well, we're, we have a lot of coal and uh, we're going to continue to generate electricity from coal. And uh, the prevailing view is we want <coughs> electric cars instead of converting vehicles to natural gas. And, uh, and then we talked about, well, we do have interests. We are already having Asian uh, countries coming north. They're very interested in, uh, in Arctic natural gas because uh, shale gas is, or natural gas is very expensive in, in uh, places like Korea, China. So we have, uh, we're very pleased uh, that they've come up, they're, they're investing in the Northwest Territories. And, uh, and uh, so it was suggested, well, maybe we should uh, look at transporting our natural gas offshore. And, uh, but we've looked into that. And our, our preference is, uh, is uh, to transport it by pipeline. It's the safest, most secure way of uh, transporting the the product. So on the, so I guess the way I see it is if 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 that's a, happens, then that's why I call it bad shale because it would likely mean the the Mackenzie pipeline would be negatively impacted. But on the good shale, uh, and that's the majority view. I'd say the bad shale is in the minority. Uh, everybody I talk to certainly believes that. We need diversity of energy, and we need to develop all forms of energy, and that we need, the United States needs Arctic natural gas, and uh, that uh, we need to begin to see the benefits of, of natural gas. There's a lot of natural gas. Uh, shale gas will, will benefit the McKenzie pipeline because it will create a demand for natural gas. It will result in consistent pricing for natural gas to move us away from uh, the spikes in volatility that uh, we've seen in the past. And uh, a large part of the reason for large utilities to stay away from uh, moving to using natural gas in the past has been the, the uh, volatility in prices. and. Uh, with a safe, secure supply of, of natural gas, uh, there'd be uh, much more of a tendency to, to move into that area. And uh, similarly, with the transportation sector, we already see large vehicles, large fleets uh, that have converted. Even in Washington, every bus I see goes by is, uh, is powered by natural gas. And uh, so we, uh, we're very heartened by uh, some of the proposed legislation, like the uh, Nat Gas Act, that uh, would, uh, would deal with the transportation sector. And uh, so, <clears throat> which brings us to, so we think that uh, good shale will, make, will ensure or help us uh, get uh, our pipeline through and to see it to construction. Uh, just before I... Uh, I conclude, uh, 
I just want to end in three points. Uh, we always emphasize uh, natural gas as a very important transition fuel. And uh, it will, as we go forward, uh, we'll see coal and gas would convert to, coal and oil would convert to natural gas. Uh, we uh, feel that North America will need to develop all of the natural gas resources to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And the McKenzie gas pipeline will be a key economic driver for the Northwest Territories, Canada, and, and the United States. And uh, we're very pleased to come here to Washington. Uh, we find it very informative, and, uh, and it's very important to know what's going on here because it, it helps us in our, in our planning for, for a lot of things that we do, and especially in this case, to make sure the McKenzie Gas Pipeline Project goes ahead. So thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much, Minister McLeod. And uh, I didn't do a, a great deal of background on either of our two speakers today because you do have their bios. But I thought, you know, since these pipeline projects that we're talking about today have long lives, it's worthwhile mentioning that both of these gentlemen um, have been around doing this work for a long time as well um, in both of their respective uh, agencies. And so they've got a long history uh, with the pipelines as well. Um, why don't we get Larry's presentation all set up? Um, are we all set or is it? So I'm curious, saying we've been around with this issue a long time is just a nice way of saying we're old. <laughs> and that we haven't succeeded at it in all these years. Old and unsuccessful. Uh, before I get into my presentation, I'd like to second the minister's plug for tourism in the Northwest Territories. I spent time there. It's a beautiful place. And at this time of year, we'd be much happier having a meeting there. Uh, than in the heat and humidity here. So I vote for Yellowknife next year. Anyway, um, what I'd like to do is first give an update of where the Alaska Gas Line Project stands with permitting. We are behind the McKenzie Project in terms of they've gotten their permits. Now they're trying to get together commercial terms, financing, make the economics work. The Alaska Project is in the middle of getting permits, FERC certificate, but we share the same big problem with the McKenzie line, and that's just the economics. There's a lot of gas, it's far away from market, and it's going to cost billions of dollars to get it to someone who's willing to pay for it. So I will get to the economics and some of the political problems after an update. There are two efforts underway on the Alaska pipeline project, and one is before the public, that's permitting. FERC certification. The other is confidential. I'll get to that next. That's the commercial terms. This is the timeline for the Alaska Pipeline Project, which is a venture of TransCanada and ExxonMobil. And the, they are working on a schedule which calls for first gas end of 2020. That's if everything goes well. The FERC process, the permits, the financing, the commercial deals for the shippers, construction. The, they are working toward an application to FERC for a certificate of public convenience and necessity. The state reimbursement agreement, which I'll get to, requires them to file that application with FERC by October 2012. They have held open houses this past spring in Alaska, British Columbia, the Yukon. There's heavy field work scheduled again 
for this year. They've done field work in previous summers, wetlands, hydrology, soils work, wildlife, core samples along the route. Uh, they are contracting with the state of Alaska to conduct surveys in the small rural, rural native villages on subsistence and human health impacts, which will be needed for the environmental impact statement, the FERC process. They have submitted their first two preliminary draft resource reports to FERC, and those are on the public record. And that's a, a very preliminary draft general project description. Not, not a lot of details in there. Those will come in December when FERC requires 11 environmental resource reports to be turned in. The 11 drafts right now, the Alaska Pipeline Project is telling FERC they will have them in at end of December. FERC then will distribute those to federal agencies, state agencies for comments. So if there are any holes, any gaps, any missing information in data, Exxon TransCanada will have one last field season in 2012 to fill in those gaps so they can get a complete application to FERC in October 2012. Uh, the law, the Alaska Natural Gas Pipeline Act of 2004 that created our office also sets some schedules for FERC. Once they get a complete application, they have 12 months to complete a draft environmental impact statement. After the draft is done, they have six months to do the final. After that, two months to make the decision. As you can expect on such a large project, FERC is nervous about getting a complete application so they can start the clock. They don't want to be accused of, of delaying this. There's a lot of work to still gather between now and October 2012. Now that FERC application is separate from the permits that the sponsors will need. The deal they have with the state, where the state is reimbursing much of their development costs, requires them to apply to FERC. It does not require the permit applications. So Exxon TransCanada has said they are working toward meeting their promise of a FERC application. They're going to phase in the permits. Basically, they're not going to spend more money than they have to to prepare permit applications until they know they have a commercial project, which makes business sense. So some of the agencies are getting a little anxious about this phased approach, but it, it does make sense that you don't spend tens of millions or hundreds of millions more on permits until you know you have a commercial deal to go forward. Uh, TransCanada, which holds the old Foothills permit for the right-of-way in Canada that was granted in 1977, also is doing a lot of work. On the Canadian side, they have to prove up hundreds of permit conditions from 1977, and they are working toward that. Just to give you an idea of magnitude, the project is estimated at a construction cost of up to $41 billion. That's for the gas treatment plant, which would be the largest in the world at a $12 billion project. About 270,000 tons of modules would be loaded on barges over three summers and brought in to the North Slope of Alaska. Hopefully, the ice won't get in the way. Uh, two and a half million tons of steel the pipe would be 48 inches in diameter, about one inch thick, and pressurized to 2,500 pounds per square inch. So a, not an insurmountable engineering feat, but a challenging engineering feat. So that's where the project is in terms of the regulatory phase. On the commercial negotiations, the open season that the Alaska Pipeline Project ran closed last July. That's where 
they lay out their project, tentative costs, timeline, and say, anybody want to ship gas down this pipe? Bids were received from several shippers, major producers on the North Slope, but certainly for proprietary reasons, they have not disclosed who bid, how much, what terms. Those are commercial negotiations have been ongoing since last July. They did say that the bids were heavily conditioned, not surprising, given the risk involved, given the uncertainty in the market, fears of construction delays, cost overruns. The law allows them to keep those negotiations, those bids confidential, but the law does require that when they reach what are called precedent agreements, sort of the prelude to a firm shipping commitment, when they reach those agreements, the terms then do become public. They have to be filed with FERC and released to the public. Everyone is hopeful that someday we will get preceding agreements, or at least some of it, to give an indication of the commercial viability of this. Uh, I am not aware um, specifically of what is involved in the commercial negotiations, but I can assume on a project this size the issue of who's going to pay for cost overruns, delays and delivery of gas, back out dates where the pipeline is going to end, there are several options of what you could connect to in, in Canada. The 1,700-mile Alaska gas line would go to northern Alberta where it could connect to the existing grid. Uh, the firm shipping commitments that are going to be required to underwrite financing for this are probably going to be worth more than $100 billion. We're looking at 20 years plus of firm transportation commitments on up to four and a half billion cubic feet of gas. It's a sizable liability to book. You certainly get to book your reserves, but you also have to account for the liability of those shipper pay contracts that would be required for this. Uh, you probably, if you've been following this, there was a, I don't like to use the word competing, there was a parallel project being designed called Denali. It was a partnership of BP and ConocoPhillips. They also were trying to put together a commercial deal to build a large diameter pipe from Alaska's North Slope to Alberta. After spending $165 million over the last few years, in April they decided to give it up. They could not reach shipping terms and they decided to stop working at it. Not surprising, there's only going to be one pipe if there is a pipe. And if there is one pipe, it's going to involve four companies. The three big producers on the North Slope, Exxon, BP, ConocoPhillips and TransCanada, which holds a certificate in Canada and brings certain advantages to a partnership. So, you know, you need the shippers, you need a pipe company, but it doesn't have to be under the name Alaska Pipeline Project or Denali LLC. Hopefully at some point the four would get together. It is not unexpected that Denali closed down. They were not receiving state reimbursement. The market, and this map shows it well, because a lot of people, particularly in Alaska, ask where the gas would go. They're very sensitive to it going to Canada, and I keep trying to explain to them it doesn't go to Canada, it goes through Canada. Canada does not need four and a half billion cubic feet of Alaska gas. Canada has plenty of its own gas. This map shows that if you brought Alaska gas to northern Alberta connected to the existing North American grid, you can move it anywhere from northern California to upstate New York on existing pipes, which have plenty of spare capacity now and will have even more spare capacity come 2020 and beyond because of the decline in conventional production out of the western Canada sedimentary basin. 
certainly today's market does not need Arctic gas. After the economic recession, the demand destruction, the growth of shale, no one out there needs Arctic gas to keep the lights or the heat on. But and it's a problem with Alaskans because they are fixated on the price du jour. They're euphoric when oil prices are high, and they're depressed when oil prices are low. They're used to looking at the day's price. The day's price doesn't matter to Arctic gas. What matters is where the producers, who are the shippers, who are the investors, who are the underwriters of the project, where they think it's going to be 2020, 2030, 2040. That is going to depend to a large extent on market, well, it's going to depend totally on, on market conditions. Greenhouse gas restrictions, shale gas, does community opposition, do concerns about air quality, water issues, fracking, does that put a, a lid, does it dampen down the shale growth? Simple supply and demand economics. Electrical generation is key to that demand growth. When you're talking about moving four or five or six billion cubic feet of Arctic gas into the market, it's going to be burned by utilities making electricity, not by people turning up their thermostat in the winter or running a little more air conditioning in the summer when you're looking at large volumes like that. So the future of Arctic gas is going to depend how much the United States transitions from a coal-fired power generation nation to gas. Not shutting down your modern efficient coal plants, but as the older ones reach the end of their life, does the utility stick with coal? and pay for expensive scrubbers and environmental uh, uh, emission rest restrictions, or do they go with, with gas? The one thing to consider, adding Arctic gas to the North American pipeline grid actually helps other shippers by putting more gas into those pipes and helping to keep the tolls down. North Slope gas is also very rich in liquids, ethane, butane, propane which are used to make plastics and all the other essentials of our life. If you look at a 4.5 billion cubic foot a day project off the North Slope, you're probably looking at 250 to 300,000 barrels a day of natural gas liquids, which are very valuable. Truth is, you could just about break even on the methane and make your money off the liquids. The state of Alaska would love to see an in-state petrochemical industry for jobs, economic development that great rallying cry of value added, but truth is there is a large investment already in Alberta down the line from the pipe with spare capacity to process those liquids, and I think populist politics aside, the market will decide where those liquids go. So moving along to what Alaska would like versus reality, you know, Alaskans have been waiting for a gas line since 1968. Oil and gas were discovered at Prudhoe Bay then, and the plan was to build an oil pipeline take the weekend off, turn the ditching equipment around, go the other way and put a gas line in. Well, didn't happen. Um, you know, I can tell you I'm a Cubs fan and that hasn't happened either. And I'm really hoping to see both. But as oil production is declining, Alaskans want to know they'll have a future. And as gas production from Cook Inlet, which supplies Anchorage, the largest city in the state, Alaskans want to know they'll have enough gas to stay warm. And then you go to Fairbanks, which is not connected to the domestic supply out of Cook Inlet for Anchorage. Fairbanks right now, people there heat their homes with diesel fuel. They're paying $4 a gallon. On a BTU basis, that's four times what you pay here for Washington gas. 
you get out to rural villages, they're paying $8 a gallon, which means they're paying eight times what you're paying on a BTU basis. The state really needs an affordable source of in-state energy, and they're looking to natural gas from that. They got proven reserves, 34, 35 trillion cubic feet on the North Slope. It's very frustrating to Alaskans. They can't get at it to burn, but it is such a small market. It's hard to move that gas into Alaska. Just to get to the state reimbursement, you know, that frustration of wanting a gas line project in 2008, the state of Alaska, the legislature agreed to something called the Alaska Gas Line Inducement Act. They gave a license to TransCanada. That entitles them to receive up to $500 million of state funds as reimbursement or partial reimbursement toward their development, permitting, planning, design costs. They're at a 90% reimbursement. It was 50% until the close of the open season. Now it's at 90%, capped at $500 million. In return for that money, TransCanada, now Exxon as a partner, promised that they will get an application for a certificate to FERC by October 2012, even if they don't have shippers. Normally, nobody would go to FERC to certificate a $40 billion project if you didn't have shippers. That was the deal the state struck. You go ahead and get a certificate, even if there's no shippers, we'll underwrite the half billion. Uh, you know, it's unfortunate. Uh, Alaskans are, some Alaskans, many Alaskans are starting to question the wisdom of that because they thought they'd see a commercial deal. They thought they'd see uh, shipper contracts, more progress to the pipeline. So there are some who would like to get out of the deal declared uneconomic, null and void. Everyone takes their keys, their files, and, and goes home. There was a bill introduced in the legislature this year, got hung up in committee to kill the deal. Uh, it will come back next year in the Alaska legislature. It's a two-year session. Bills are alive the second year. And hopefully there will be some progress by then so the opponents of the reimbursement, the opponents of the, the deal to get to FERC by 2012 will be, will be satisfied. Uh, there's certainly, Alaska's no different than the rest of the country. There's a sizable contingent of people in Alaska who don't trust big oil, don't like them, uh, and are not enthused about cutting checks to them as, as reimbursement. Meanwhile, and Alaska is great on distractions and diversions. I think it's in our Constitution. We now have a plan B. In case there's no big line, and again, the big line is the cheapest way to get gas to Alaskans. You're taking off a small portion. Someone else is paying most of the cost of that mortgage. Plan B is an in-state line. It goes by lots of different names. Uh, it would run from Prudhoe Bay to Fairbanks and into Anchorage. They... Their next report to the legislature is due July 1. The past two sessions, the legislature has appropriated $35 million to them to do planning and design work. You know, $35 million to some of you may not seem, seems like a lot of money. When you're as rich with oil money as we are, $35 million is a small appropriation for the Alaska legislature. Kind of sad. But that $35 million will get us some rights-of-way permits, design work. They're looking at a 500 million cubic foot a day line, about $8.5 billion, plus or minus 35%, I might add, on the construction estimate, to satisfy local needs. 
sort of the hell, we're never going to get a big line, tired of waiting. If we pay the bill, we'll have a certainty of schedule. We'll just make sure we get it built ourselves. Problem is, it's not even close to economic. 500 million cubic feet a day, if you shut down all the existing gas production in Cook Inlet, is still two and a half times more than Alaska needs on an average day. So I don't know what you do with it. Well, they hope, of course, to export it or turn it into gas liquids or, or, or something. But it would take, from our calculation, about a $5 billion state subsidy on the construction cost to get that gas down to the 7 or $8 an MCF that people in Anchorage are paying now. My argument to Alaskans is if you're going to throw $5 billion to subsidize an uneconomic pipeline that generates no revenue and no new exploration, why don't you take that $5 billion across the street, sit down with the producers in TransCanada, and see if you can cut a deal. But uh, I'm not governor. Anyway, so to, I guess, mimic what the minister said, you know, the big pipeline is possible. Half of the coal-burning power plants in the U.S. are more than 40 years old. You can find a lot of people out there who s predict, forecast, prognosticate, expect coal plant retirements in the years ahead, turning to natural gas. If you, the Interstate Natural Gas Association, INGA, did a study last year, or their foundation did a study, it was a year or so ago, showing that if just half of the oldest, dirtiest coal-fired power plants in the U.S. were to retire, you'd need five and a half billion cubic feet a day of new supplies to meet the demand to generate the kilowatt hours. So if you look at that, you could see where there is the possibility, 2020 and beyond, that between demand build from power plant conversions from an increasing economy, uh, that there would be a market for Arctic gas if you can get in there at a competitive price. And I tell Alaskans that their gas isn't worth anything more than what the market pays. It's not like salmon where you can get someone at Whole Foods to pay $20 a pound for it. It's just a molecule of methane. If the market's $6.03, your gas is worth $6.03 minus transportation costs, minus processing costs, minus production costs. That's what it's worth. Alaskans got filthy, stinking rich off a gas line. They'd like to get filthy, stinking rich off an oil line. Since 1977, we have $40 billion in our sovereign wealth fund, $12 billion in our budget reserve fund, no sales tax, no income tax, and we hand out dividends to everyone every year. If you demand to get filthy, stinking rich off a gas line, it's never going to get built. The spread just isn't there. If you're willing to get wealthy off a gas line, because by tapping into it with the economies of scale, you can get gas locally at affordable prices. You can have a reason for someone to explore on the North Slope for more oil and gas because now you could sell the gas, not just the oil, and treat the gas as a liability. In total, the state would come out ahead even if it doesn't get rich off the production tax that it would like to. So I think the state needs to sit down with the companies and negotiate fiscal terms something that works for everyone, uh, quicker capital cost recovery, tax deferral, back-end loading. The state needs to explore what, in a low price for the foreseeable future, gas market you need to do, could do, might be able to do to help the economics. So work on that concurrent while the project team's working on permitting and design, see if you can pull this together. And with that, questions?
great. Thank you very much. We've got plenty of time to have a good discussion. And while all of you are sort of thinking of questions, um, I thought I'd just start off while Terry, uh, Larry's still on a roll. Um, one question that uh, we were sort of wondering about was whether or not uh, Minister McLeod had sort of brought up that they'd looked at uh, exports of LNG as a potential option, and whether or not that's something that you all have looked at and what you think about the economics of that. I mean, I know there's been some talk about trying to extend the lifetime of Kenai and, and, and yeah. some other options, but I just wanted to know. Sure. There is a sizable portion of Alaska who likes the notion of going overseas. They see the price in the paper. It's $12 a million BTU in Asia, and they think, my gas is worth $12. And just so you know, our office... The federal law that set up our office set up a loan guarantee, some tax incentives, permitting certainty applies to a project that moves gas to North America, to the lower 48. If you want to export Alaska gas overseas, you're on your own with our office. But I guess my take on it, looking at it, talking to people, is it would cost you, the estimate is $20, $25 billion to build a treatment plant on the North Slope and a pipeline to get to Tidewater. Then you've got to build a liquefaction plant. And a terminal. So you're looking at what, 30, 35 billion dollars to get a molecule of LNG into a tanker. And you're going to go out there and compete with all the tidewater projects in Australia, Papua New Guinea, Sakhalin in Russia, Gutter. I just don't see it. I just, China didn't get to be China by paying Nordstrom prices for its commodity. It got to be China by paying Walmart. And Alaska will never be able to supply. LNG at Walmart prices will just get underbid. I don't see an Asian market there for Alaska gas because of the cost of getting it to Tidewater. Okay, um, if you do have uh, questions, please just, uh, we got a couple ground rules. Uh, state your name and affiliation, just so our speakers know who you are. And uh, you're welcome to make comments because we'd like to have a discussion, but if you do have a question, please make it clear and in the form of a question. Thanks. Charlie. Uh, Charles, Charlie Ebinger from Brookings Institution. Is there still any talk at all about linking uh, the Mackenzie Valley uh, project and Prudhoe Bay? It's known as the over-the-top route. If you think of the top of our world as the top of your world, it is an over-the-top route is illegal under state and federal law. And so there's talk about it, but no one... No one's advocating it that I'm aware of. And it was just politics, I think, that caused those laws to go through, uh, job preservation and, and such. Maybe. Bob may have something to add. Yeah, thank you. Uh, uh, the people in Northwest Territories, uh, when they get very frustrated uh, with the long delays, uh, they start looking, well, maybe when, if nothing happens, we need a plan B, so somebody should look at the over the top because it's, uh, it's, you know, if you get a pipeline to the Mackenzie, then obviously the economics will change because you don't, uh, it's shorter to go from uh, Prudhoe Bay to, to, in, to Inuvik, for example, or conversely, if uh, uh, the other talk is, well, we're not going to let our gas sit there. If Alaska goes ahead then, and Mackenzie doesn't, we'll go the other way. Because our, our government has not uh, not made it illegal to go over the top. It's uh, the United States uh, has made it illegal to go over the top. So uh, so the question I've, I've 
pose to Larry once in a while is, okay, if uh, Alaska doesn't go ahead, or uh, I was asking the Alaska government representatives, uh, if Alaska doesn't go ahead, how long are they going to keep that law in there where you can't, you can't go over the top, and, and why would you keep it? But right now, there's, uh, it's uh, just it's speculation, and uh, as I say, probably if nothing happens, I think there will probably be more discussion on over the top. Thank you. Well, I'll d discuss the net back from the Alaska project. If you look at the production cost, now keep in mind they're already producing the gas at Prudhoe Bay. They're producing more than 8 billion cubic feet a day, stripping it out of the flow that comes out of the ground um, and re-injecting it. So it would be diverting some of that over. Um, that gas would be very inexpensive to produce. Future fines would have production costs. Um, but if you just look at what's up there now, the estimated rough cost of getting it out of the ground, treating it, removing the contaminants, hydrogen sulfide, water, and the rest, and then shipping it all the way into U.S. markets, you know, you're probably looking four, four and a half dollars per MCF, assuming you can bring it in on budget. So if you got $6 gas, net back could be a buck and a half, two dollars. But you're right, that's just the methane. 250,000 barrels of liquid a day really does help the economics of the, the project. You've got to have those, those liquids. And I think, realistically, you've got to have the expectation, again, assuming you can bring it on budget, that you're looking at a long-term average price of six. You get below that, it gets really very iffy. Is this Henry Hub? Is it Henry Hub? Yeah, that would be a Henry Hub price. Yeah, thank you. Uh, the the McKenzie pipeline, obviously, uh, we have a much drier gas, so uh, the studies that we have done uh, show that uh, we don't have anywhere near the amount of liquids in, in, in the McKenzie pipeline. And uh, in the uh, early days when uh, it was uh, seen as a race between Alaska and uh, McKenzie, uh, Alberta government, <coughs> for example, had said they, uh, they preferred Alaska because it had uh, more liquids that they could put into their petrochemical, but uh, we very quickly made them uh, aware that that was politically incorrect. And, uh, <laughs> and I think now everybody recognizes that uh, it, it is not a race, that both, both pipelines are needed as long as the McKenzie pipeline goes first. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, they, uh, so the liquids, we, we do have liquids uh, and we did we did uh, do a study on value added, uh, similar to uh, to Alaska, and and the conclusions of the report was there, there wasn't enough uh, enough uh, liquids in the pipeline to make it uh, to make it viable to have a value added facility in the Northwest Territories. Thank you. And I'd also like to say it's not a race; whichever one can get its economics together first, and I think eventually, as we look out decades ahead. Both will go, though after Boston beat Vancouver in hockey, I'm trying to think maybe we do owe Canada something. Claire Richardson Barlow, um, thank you both very much. Um, my question comes from being a native Oregonian. Uh, for as long as I've been aware of state politics in Oregon, the topic of constructing pipeline infrastructure has been pretty contentious. Um, driving through Oregon and Washington, you can see 
advertisements both for and against um, construction of infrastructure. I'm just wondering if public opposition in the Pacific Northwest is a significant barrier, if it's just white noise, and how you address public opposition when you're here in Washington or um, in Oregon or Washington or elsewhere. Thank you. Uh, well, in the Northwest Territories, uh, first of all, we have a, a very small population. And uh, people in the Northwest Territories, uh, uh, the way we use the terminology is we don't like people from outside telling us what to do. So uh, we, we, have, uh, we have had uh, attempts by uh, NGOs uh, to, uh, to raise opposition to the pipeline. And uh, so a lot of times we, uh, we get accused of uh, old school old school thinking because we think the pipeline's a good thing and uh, uh, some people think well you know we should be going to alternative fuels we should go into renewables and, and so on but uh, and I think we are we are working in those areas but it's it's very expensive uh, where we live and uh, you can you can imagine renewables are much more expensive and the Aboriginal governments well the Aboriginal governments are have been are being courted or have been courted by the NGOs, but the Aboriginal governments are one third owners of the pipeline. Are going to be one third owners of the pipeline when it's built. So uh, basically, uh, through the regulatory process, uh, we we've dealt with all of those things now. Uh, uh, so we don't have the same opposition. The, the biggest uh, opposition that we've been hearing and uh, uh, the. NGOs have publicly stated that they support the, the Alaska pipeline rather than the McKenzie because they feel the McKenzie molecules are going to go directly to the oil sands. And uh, so uh, we have said, well, the oil sands are going to be developed whether the McKenzie pipeline goes ahead or not. So it's not a matter of the molecules being designated. And as far as uh, the Pacific Northwest, well, uh, one of the things that uh, we've been looking at, uh, because uh, we're on a major tributary, the Mackenzie River, which goes right into the Arctic Ocean, and with the uh, the melting ice and the ice pack uh, dissipating, there's a lot more open water. So there's a lot more interest. Uh, historically, we've always shipped our goods from... Uh, upstream to downstream, which is is the reverse of how most countries are, are developed. Usually they start at the, where the river flows out into the ocean and then they move back in-stream. But now that with the more open water, there's a lot of interest in moving uh, large vessels like uh, in, up the Mackenzie River doing a portage at Fort Smith and then bringing it up into Fort McMurray. And uh, so um, there's there's uh, Imperial Oil, I believe, is attempting to move large equipment through Idaho, and uh, they've had s significant opposition. So we keep telling them, well, we have the answer. But uh, so eventually they may go to that. But as far as our pipeline, I think, uh, uh, We've, with the regulatory phase completed, we don't have a lot of opposition, though. No. Thank you. Well, I, I will 
um, do one better than the minister. You had commented that people in the Northwest Territories don't like people outside telling them what to do. Alaskans don't like people outside or inside telling them what to do. They just don't like anybody telling them what to do. Aside from that, you know, Alaska is a resource development state. People enjoy the largesse of it, you know, the no tax, the dividends, everything provided. So I don't think, I mean, it's not to say Alaskans don't care about the environment, they, they do, but it's kind of like shale gas started in Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas didn't have the same problem till it moved into the driving distance of Philadelphia. They're not accustomed to resource development. I think in Alaska, people will be concerned about subsistence, the effect on fish and wildlife that rural Alaskans depend on for their lives. Uh, but it's, it's not going to be the same blockage. The pipe goes through Alaska, Yukon Territory, Alberta, all resource development, the equivalent of yeah. the western states if you will, as opposed to urban areas. So I don't think there will be issues on certain river crossings, lake crossings, but none of them are insurmountable. I do not see the permits as being the problem on this project. It's just the economics. And Larry, you had brought up the Denali project falling through and sort of what you thought the implications were of that. It's being largely reported as in the press as, as being sort of a sign of perhaps the uneconomic nature of the, these pipeline proposals in general. But you seem to indicate you thought maybe, uh, and, and if I'm putting words in your mouth, please do correct me, um, there might be an opportunity for sort of the four big producers involved in the project to get together on, on, on one. I mean, is that something you think is in the works or a likely outcome, or do you just think the project didn't work? I don't think it's in the works at the moment. I mean, I don't think they've sat down. but. It, if there was an Alaska gas line, there's always, there's going to be one. It's going to involve those four companies. Denali, BP Conoco thought they could make a better run of it. Remember, they started in 2008. 2008 is when gas spiked at $14 an MCF that summer. Economics changed. They are putting in 100% of their money with no state reimbursement. After $165 million, they decided they're not going to be able to put together the deal. But that doesn't mean they gave up on a pipeline, they gave up on spending their own money to move toward permitting for a project that they would be in charge of. So yeah, it's disappointing that the market has changed, but I don't think it's a death knell to the project. It's, it's more a kick in the head to people to realize the economics are really tight on Arctic gas. And our job is, from a permitting perspective is to make sure the federal government doesn't do anything to make an already difficult project any more difficult. But that only affects permitting. The economics still are going to come down to the producers and the state. State of Alaska takes a production tax, a royalty, a property tax on oil and gas. The only state property tax we have is on oil and gas property and a corporate income tax. Somewhere in there, you add it all up, they get a big bite. They've got to decide how much they want this project. Do we have any other questions? I can keep going, Charlie. Thank you. How big a problem do you believe for either of the pipelines is the fact that by all indications the shale gas resource both in the United States and Canada is huge? I was just talking to someone the other day from a major oil company who is now talking about the Utica shale under the Marcellus. Now, you know, I'm sure there will be environmental issues that surface. But if you believe these reservoir numbers, 
I just don't see how you can see any mar market for Arctic gas even after you've taken it in big trucks and other applications for a long, long time in the future. Just wondering, does that go in your equations at all? Well, certainly, and I, and I, I, I tried to address it by referring to bad shale and, and good shale. And uh, uh, we have been uh, uh, making the comparison that uh, shale gas will, rather than hinder the Mackenzie pipeline, will benefit the pipeline because uh, it will, as I said, it will, uh, it will provide increased demand for, for natural gas and it will provide for consistent pricing. Obviously, if uh, shale gas goes, goes through the roof, it's going to make it a lot more difficult to, to get the financing in place or the fiscal framework in place. I mean, we've already, uh, we're already hearing rumors that uh, in Canada that uh, exactly the same thing. Uh, how, how do you deal with uh, abundance of shale gas? And uh, so we look at the demand for energy and uh, in every instance, we see the demand for energy increasing and we see no matter how you, you put it, no matter how much shale gas uh, you forecast uh, the the numbers indicate that arctic natural gas will be required for both so that's that's the way we look at it thank you you know i've seen the same estimates 100 year supply of of shale gas and you know i got to wonder i look at bp's annual statistical energy outlook and and they show the world has 66 years of oil supplies but oil is $110. I, you know, so I, you can't produce it all at once. Is what price is it economical at? The shale gas, I don't think, is going to take over the world at $4. As you look ahead, they're going to need a higher price. The produced water that's coming out of Pennsylvania shale gas wells is being trucked into Ohio to be injected. They're injecting the brine into wells in Ohio because Pennsylvania's geology doesn't allow brine injection. The state said you can't dump it in streams through a sewage treatment plant anymore. It's, I mean, I don't, look, we all know every forecast anyone issues is wrong, right? That's a given. I just look at it and say, if demand builds enough, if shale encounters water handling costs and other restrictions, which bring the market to the $6 range, well, then Alaska gas, Arctic gas can get there at that price. We would just have a lower net back, and then it just comes down to are the producers in the state able to strike a deal and live with a lower net back on $6 gas? Because there is some value to having a diversity of supplies. You look ahead 30, 40 years. So I guess I wouldn't give up. It just makes it harder. Following up on that, I mean, well, how do you all read the the sort of approval at Sabine Pass for us to be able to, you know, or at least Chenier to be able to export more uh, of our natural gas here in the United States to non-FTA countries and the potential for more of those export projects? I mean, does that offer, in your view, and, and this is a definitely a long-run perspective, a more sort of diversified global energy, or excuse me, uh, integrated global gas market that would allow sort of gas from, you know, uh, Arctic gas to come into the United States, but perhaps the U.S. to be a bit more involved in sort of import-export dynamics. I mean, does that help your picture, or does that just further solidify this view that we've got so much gas that we're going to think about exporting it now, too? 
Well, I guess uh, my answer is uh, it's an emphatic uh, no, it doesn't help at all. And, uh, as, and I think it all boils down to what kind of country do you want to have in Canada or the United States? Like, why would you have uh, all this domestic production of, of shale gas yet export it all to uh, foreign countries uh, while you still have uh, issues with uh, greenhouse gas emissions and climate change and, and so on. To me, there's, it doesn't make any sense at all. But uh, And uh, I think that if the public, uh, certainly in Canada, if uh, the, the public uh, realizes, well, you have uh, significant <coughs> natural gas and, and you're exporting it all because uh, uh, you, you want to make a profit, well, in Canada, we pretty well have, you look at uh, a captive market. Uh, you look at the oil sands. If Keystone, if Keystone doesn't get approved, or the McKenzie pipeline doesn't get approved, then what is what are we going to do with the oil and, and gas? The, the only option is to 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 export it. And uh, in my mind, it's better to to uh, convert to uh, natural gas or to uh, alternative fuels or renewable fuels rather than uh, exporting it and let other countries benefit from from natural gas. Thank you. You know, I've followed Freeport, Chenier looking to get into the export market. To me, it's just, it's a business move on their part. They've invested billions of dollars because they thought they were going to be in the LNG receiving business and they woke up and realized there is no LNG receiving business and for the foreseeable future, there isn't. So you can write off that asset, or painful as it might be, you can spend another couple billion more and run a bi-directional plant, hoping one way or another each month you're going to take a ship in or a ship out. So I look at it as a business decision that really doesn't affect this. It's just something they've got to do to salvage the capital they put in down there. It could, in a way, maybe it could, hurt, it could help. Just make it a more fluid market. If if you have gas that's produced, Texas, Louisiana, maybe the best net back is to send it somewhere else. And the best net back, you still may be able to move Alaska gas, Arctic gas into Pacific Northwest, West Coast, Upper Midwest. But I, I think it's just a smart business decision on their part. Yeah, uh, Quentin Hodgson from the Strategy Office at the Pentagon. Um, Given that uh, in the U.S. at least uh, attempts to try to provide some sort of uh, legal framework to increase the cost of essentially carbon emissions has, has failed, at least in the near to midterm, are there other things that you see as uh, reasonably in prospect for making some form of case for these pretty uh, slim economic uh, uh, business cases that you've laid out? And then the second question I also would add to that is for the minister. You talked about waiting to see what the U.S. does, and clearly, you know, we're the bigger uh, brother here who has the biggest impact. But I'm wondering um, what can you do to try to influence um, and push that along? Because clearly, we will often be very late to making a decision, if any at all. And there are often perverse impacts of what we decide, since we often decide for ourselves, not necessarily for what's in Canada's interest. Yeah, uh, thank you. Uh, I think those are two very good questions. And uh, I think earlier on when uh, Canada signed on to Kyoto and uh, uh, everybody was expecting that 
you know, we're seeing in the United States, there seemed to be movement to towards a lower carbon economy, and uh, there was emissions standards or vehicle standards, and, and, and so on. Uh, and we, we've certainly felt that uh, uh, with those kinds of, like we always hear about, if you had full cost accounting, then everybody would be using natural gas. And uh, but uh, we we don't have full cost accounting. In, in Canada, our government has sort of even abandoned any attempt at, uh, at uh, showing that we're, we're actively trying to reduce emissions. And our, our federal government policy, as stated, is that we're going to wait until the United States decides what they're going to do. And uh, then we'll, we'll follow suit. And uh, because we're too, our economies are so closely tied that we, we can't get away from that. And uh, so, like in our territory, we're getting a lot of pressure to, to, uh, to uh, put in a revised greenhouse gas st strategy because we had a, a territorial greenhouse gas strategy that applied only to our, our, our own government activities, and uh, uh, we're getting a lot of pressure to well, we got to put one in place to show the rest of the world that we're serious about doing our part uh, because it's. It's very obvious that it's affecting our environment. It's affecting the way we live. But uh, I guess some people also view well. No matter what we do, n nobody else is going to care as long as unless it starts affecting them. And uh, and I think that's the same is true. I don't think the United States will d start taking it seriously unless it really starts affecting them as well. If it start you start seeing affecting you in your backyard, you'll you'll push for the government to do something about it. And uh, so I guess right now uh, we, you know, we participate in all the, all the world initiatives. We go to Cancun, we go to Copenhagen and, and so on. And, uh, and we, 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 are, we are very captive in our, in our uh, consumption of energy because, uh, because of our climate, uh, it, we have a very very high per capita cons uh, emissions or carbon or greenhouse gas emissions, but collectively it's very small because we're a very small population over a large geographic area. So we, we're, I guess we're reduced to showing that we're a leader in this area and uh, lobbying our, our federal government to, to uh, do something about it and we keep hearing <coughs> It's it's being done at the provincial level, and you know, like uh, British Columbia uh, implemented a carbon tax. Quebec has uh, some form of carbon tax. People question whether it's really a carbon tax or not. But and uh, so I think it's happening. It's going to happen from the bottom up rather from from the top down. Thank you. I would agree with that, but first I'd like to second your cynicism that Congress is not looking like it's likely to do anything, cap and trade, greenhouse gas emissions, carbon tax. Hell, they can barely get it together to pay the bills for the country. So thinking they're going to tackle something comprehensive like energy legislation, yeah, I've given up on. But I agree with the minister. It's If you look at the news, it is coming from the bottom up. Denver is going coal-free on their power generation. Canada, I believe, as a national policy, is phasing out coal generation 20, 2014. 2014. Uh, Penn State University getting out of the coal plant business, going gas. Uh, Washington State 
and the largest coal plant there reached a deal to shut down that coal plant, convert to gas. So I think it is going to come from people who are affected, municipalities, counties, states. On a federal level, you know, maybe we'll see something with natural gas vehicles. You could conceivably end up with another billion cubic feet a day of demand if you did some major conversion in the long-haul trucking fleet. I know Anadarko and other producers are actually putting their own money into it to build the fueling stations you need on the interstate so the long-haul truckers could convert and know they're going to be able to fill up rather than coasting downhill looking for the next compressed national natural gas fueling station. So there are some things. I think vehicles, you might see some legislation out of Congress, but in terms of driving up the demand for power generation and any kind of emissions controls, I agree with the minister. It's going to come from a local level. I think in a general sense, anything that makes the world market more liquid and encourages people to burn more gases is good. So I, I guess in that general answer, I, I think it helps. You're right, with the Panama Canal expansion, you'll be able to move the tankers back and forth instead of going the long way through the end of the world. It lowers costs by a, a dollar in MCF or so, is what I'm told, on, on shipping costs. So it does, it gets people thinking about gas, gives them more options. So I think it helps. Yeah, in a similar way. So, and Minister, you talked a little bit about it, but this focus on the Arctic, and this will be a lot of what we talk about in our uh, July event on Arctic oil production, but how has that changed how people are looking at these projects? I mean, is that increased attention on Arctic resources in general, presence uh, in that region? You know, I think there's been a lot of criticism that the United States hasn't paid as much attention to its strategic positioning in the Arctic, um, and we're still sort of on the fence about how we feel about uh, production of uh, oil and gas resources up there, even if it is, you know, sort of going on. How, how has that increased attention on that region changed uh, some of the dynamics for these projects going forward? Well, uh, I was, we're very surprised uh, at the amount of attention the Arctic is receiving these days. And uh, uh, almost every day you hear, you hear about the Arctic and uh, uh, we talk about races and, you know, they Every Arctic country is uh, is doing all their demarcation because of the United Nations law of the sea, uh, so that uh, they can uh, claim as much of the resources. Everybody realizes. I think every Arctic country realizes the amount of natural resources in, in those areas in the Arctic. So, uh, like the government of Canada is spending a hundred million dollars uh, to to do. Uh, geoscience work in, in that, that whole area and uh, there's a recognition that uh, a lot more attention has to be paid on Arctic sovereignty and uh, projects such as the McKenzie pipeline uh, and uh, offshore projects uh, uh, will certainly uh, play a large part when the demarcation lines are, are drawn and uh, as a as a government, uh, we've always been telling Ottawa that the best the best way to uh, support Arctic sovereignty is rather than just focus on use it or lose it, but to to support the community communities in the Arctic and the people that live there and continue to live there is is the best way to show that uh, uh, 
you're a sovereign nation and that that land is part of your nation. And uh, so we're starting to see it also the, we're also like after what happened in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, the NEB is doing a major review of the, uh, of our offshore drilling policies and techniques. And so I think all of those uh, projects uh, are uh, a reflection of that. Uh, uh, I used to attend meetings of the Arctic Council, which is uh, uh, is of all the Arctic countries, and uh, uh, we're starting to see very high-level uh, official or politicians uh, attending all these meetings. We're starting to see uh, all kinds of countries uh, asking to sit at the table or be observer status. Uh, we always used to see. Uh, Chile was always there. Uh, Japan was there periodically. China is uh, is that is that is there now? Or and uh, and I think it's it's good for the Arctic because uh, there was there was a uh, agreement that was signed at the last meeting on uh, shared resources and how to uh, to deal with when it comes to oil spills and cleanup and those kinds of things. So so I think that. Uh, there's fine, finally a recognition that uh, the Arctic is very important. And uh, in the Northwest Territories or Arctic countries, we have a different map than that, uh, where uh, <laughs> it's centered around the North Pole to show how important the Arctic is. So I think there's, there's been a recognition of that throughout, uh, throughout the world. Thank you. The Alaska Gas Project has enough onshore gas reserves to keep a 4.5 billion cubic foot a day line filled for about 14, 15 years before you started seeing a decline in production, which is important because it allows us to stay out of that offshore drilling debate at the moment. There's enough onshore known proven reserves to start the project. Obviously, if you're looking 40, 50 year life, you're going to need more gas at some point. Uh, but I, I agree with the minister. I think the uh, increased focus on the Arctic people is very important. You know, we have been taking oil out of the land for almost 40 years. Hopefully, we'll be taking gas out. And I think it's, it's good that there's increased consultation and respect uh, for the peoples who are going to be affected by the development for the next 100 years. Questions. And I'm going to uh, uh, close our session in the interest of making sure that the minister makes his plane on time. It's a long trip. Um, but I just wanted to ask you to please join me in thanking our two speakers today for a really excellent and informative presentation. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, everybody. Uh, always enjoy coming here to speak at the center. Thank you.